Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. If you got a Bible, go ahead and meet me in chapter in Acts chapter 2. I just want you to hold it there in verse 42. We're going to read it in a minute. Last week we continued looking at our vision series and we've been talking about what it means to be a church and how we grow as a church and we desire to be this gospel-centered church here that seeks the welfare of the city and what that means is that as Renewal Church is in the city, we don't want to just be in the city, we want to be for the city. We want the city of Chicago to know we're here. We want this school to know that we're here and when we're there, we want those places to be better because we are in those places. That goes for workplaces, that goes for homes, that goes for communities. Communities. Now that vision is fleshed out in three different prongs. I like to say we want to renew, we want to rebuild, and we want to release people for the work of Jesus Christ, not only in this city, but ultimately the world. Last week we began talking about this growing as a Christian and a disciple. What does that mean? Number one, we said a Christian cannot be devoted to themselves. What this means is that Christians now, instead of devoting what this cultural me, this ideology of me and saying it's all about me, everything revolves around me, we're now counterculture and saying we're devoted to Jesus and to other people. And we said with that, secondly, Christian grows by having the right aim. It's all about him. I'm looking ahead. I'm looking what's before me. I'm pressing towards the mark. I want to be like Christ. I'm going to live for him with all of my life. Today, we're going to look at how that's fleshed out more practically by looking at a very familiar verse to some of you all and to some, maybe not so much. Acts 2, 42. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and stand on your feet. I'm going to invite my daughter up here. She's going to read this scripture for us since this family Sunday. Come on up, Ellie. She begged me to read this scripture. So come on up here, baby. Acts 2.42. Hear now the reading of God's word. And the fellowship devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread in their prayers. The very word of God. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Today I want to preach on a Christian's devotion. Before we go any further, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. You're a good God. Uh, We don't deserve your grace and mercy or your love, God, but you so willingly bestow it upon us. You so willingly give to us. You see us in our needy spaces and you say, I love him, I love her. I want them with me. And you share your love with us. You saved us. God, I just pray that you would intercede in our hearts today, that you would speak from my mouth, that it wouldn't be my words, but it'd be your words so that folks can hear a word from you. God, decrease me so that you may increase in this place. Father, have your way. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we all said together, amen, amen. You can be seated. Well, I talked about this cultural me and everything revolving around me last week. I need y'all to be honest with me. How many of y'all got bit by the me bug last week? Maybe last night, y'all, y'all don't even know what I'm talking about, huh? What I mean is everything in your life was revolving around me. 
Is this going to benefit me in this decision? Is it going to go my way if I do this? How many of y'all got bit by it? Be honest with me this morning. Come on now, be honest. We all been there this week. I don't want to do that because it's about me. I want to do this because it's about me. I want to go there because it's about me. Let's be honest. And the reason we struggle with it, y'all, is because it screams at us every day. It's all about me. Me, 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 me. It's all about us. We're plagued with all the different phrases, YOLO, carpe diem, you do you, I do me, you do what you want to do, I'm going to do what I want to do. I pull myself up on bootstraps, it's all about me. You can have it your way or my way like Usher. We want it like Burger King. Matter of fact, Burger King tapped into this ideology a long time ago, way back in 1974. I want y'all to take a look at this commercial. Two Whopper Juniors and four Coca-Cola. And would I have to wait long if you made one Whopper with no pickle and no lettuce? No, sir. Hold the pickle, hold the lettuce. Special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us serve it your way. Oh, well, in that case, could I have the other Whopper with extra ketchup? Sure. We can serve your grilled beef Whopper fresh with everything on top of any way you Now that's the way to do things, our way. Have it your way, have it your way, at Burger King, Burger King. Now what's wrong with that commercial, y'all? I mean, besides the waggy hairdos and the wag singing, what's wrong with that commercial? I mean, they couldn't, I mean, that was horrible. You want a Whopper after that? Come on now. I mean, what's wrong with the commercial? Y'all can talk to me. What's the ideology? What are they talking about in this commercial? Me, 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 me. Have it your way. This is way back in 1974. They tapped into this. And now, is there any wonder that they're a multi-billion dollar industry today, Burger King? You can have it your way. You don't even have to get out your car. Just tell me what you want, and I got it for you. Have it your way. Now hear me, I'm not talking about, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't live life to the full, you shouldn't do all of that and, and, and work hard. That's not what I'm saying. The question is, yeah, go ahead and live out for the full, but who are you living your life to the full for? And that's who are you really devoted to? So today I want to flesh out the Christian's devotion. I want to practically look at this and talk about one point. It's this scripture. One point, growing as a Christian involves devotion to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayer. Now, when we look at this context around our passage, verse 42, it comes on the heels of Jesus' ascension in chapter 1 of Acts. Jesus has just now ascended to heaven after raising from the grave. But what we see in chapter 1 is that he's spending these last few days, these last few moments with those that are closest to him, those disciples, the men, who he, 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 the men who he poured his life into he's in the last three years, and now he's spending these last days. He's been risen from the grave for about 40 days, and he's hanging out with these guys. He's pouring his life out on them. And he tells the disciples that after he leaves, 
the Holy Spirit is going to come and indwell them. The third person of the Trinity will come and they will receive power to be witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of earth. Jesus then ascends to heaven. He goes back and the Holy Spirit comes and falls on all the believers in that place. Now, there were about 120 people right there at this time. We see this in verse 15 of chapter 1. People, when the Spirit comes, they start speaking in tongues, it says. Now, these tongues, before you go off the rail and say there's some mystical language where people are babbling about, that's not what's happening here. When you actually do the research on this, these people that are speaking in tongues, they're speaking in their native languages. The, the Greek word is glossa, that means language. They're speaking in their native languages. And this is important to note because they were all Galileans, which means that they didn't know their native languages. That'd be like me saying I'm an African-American and all of a sudden I just start speaking an African language that I don't know. That's what's happening right here. The these people are speaking in native tongues, tongues that they do not know about, and the Spirit falls on them. So you have these people that are watching all this happen and they see them here and they're speaking in these native tongues that they know they don't know. And they're like, this is wild. These people that are onlooking, they know the languages. And they're like, there's no way they know these languages. Either they're drunk or God must have moved. Peter stands up. I love this part. Peter stands up full of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And he starts preaching and he starts out saying, look, look, they're not drunk. No, no, the Spirit of God has fallen on them. He says, you remember Joel? Y'all remember Joel? He's saying, you would remember Joel because these are Jewish people, so they understand the Old Testament. They know he's referring to this prophet in the Old Testament. And they say, y'all remember Joel? He says, remember him because he said that all of this would happen. He told us all this would happen, that people would start, would start prophesying and the spirit would fall on flesh and they would see visions and many works and wonders would be done in Jesus' name. And everyone who calls on the name of Jesus would be saved. He says, y'all remember him? He keeps going and this is the part I really love because now, now that he's got their attention, he's like, y'all remember Joel? He, he, he really brings it to their neighborhood. He says, okay, y'all remember Joel? Well, y'all remember Jesus? You, you know Jesus. The one who did all of those marvelous acts in front of you. You know, the man that you sent to be crucified. You, you know, the man you killed. Y'all remember Jesus? This is what he's saying in his sermons. Y'all remember him? That same God that you killed, that did everything in front of you. But then he says, but God raised him up from the dead and I love the language in, in, in verse 24 he says he's loosing the pangs of death because it was impossible to hold him down it's just like the song we sing death couldn't hold him down that's where we get this from he rose from the grave he says this man Jesus God in the flesh rose from the dead then Peter ends in verse 36 if you have your Bibles look at it he says let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Family, he's trying to help them understand who in fact Jesus was. He's saying he was God and he is God and you killed him. Now when the people hear this truth, verse 37 says that they're cut to the heart. They're cut to the heart. And they say, what must we do to be saved? 
I mean, just for a minute, y'all put yourself in their shoes. Could you imagine learning the truth that you just killed God in the flesh? I mean, you're, you're Jewish. You've been waiting for the Messiah. You've been waiting for someone to come save you. He's come and you just killed him. Could you imagine the feeling that, they, that they're, 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 they're feeling right now? I mean, that's got to be overwhelming. What must we do to be saved, they say. Peter says, repent, meaning recognize your wrongdoings, confess, and turn from them and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you too will have the Holy Spirit. So they all believe, they're baptized, and they receive the Spirit. Now there's 3,000 people there. All of this background helps us understand, this context helps us understand the key word in verse 42 before we keep moving, which is they. Y'all see they? Right there in verse 42, the church has now gone from 120 people to 3,000 plus after one sermon. I mean, soapbox for a minute. I mean, Peter ain't never preached before. My man stands up and 3,000 people get saved. I can't even get y'all to clap and amen for me. <laughs> see that golf laugh, you know, it was just like, I'm just playing. It's 930 and y'all, y'all got to come on now, come on now. Look at, look at the text. He preaches and 3,000 people get saved. That's where we are right here in this passage. And verse 42 says, and they, all of them, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, this is directly after Peter's sermon and these people devote themselves to four things and the church grows. Now, pay attention to these four things. That's what we got to look at to see how this church goes forward. These people individually and corporately are devoting themselves to this. It says they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the last, what is it? Prayers. Now, before we break these four down, it's very significant that the author uses the word devoted in verse 42. Right after they, he says they devoted. You see devoted? It's like I told you last week, in the original language, Greek, devotion actually means to intentionally obscure self-designation. What this means is that these people are intentionally removing themselves from the picture. They're denouncing their wants, what they want, this whole idea of me, and saying, nope, it's about you. It's about you, Jesus. They're leaving me out of the picture, and they're running after him. They're removing themselves. And see, as I said last week, growing as a Christian cannot revolve around me. Cannot revolve around self. This is very hard. Because we live in that culture, as I said at the beginning, where everything's set up around us. Social media, our our, our fast food restaurants. We don't have to have face-to-face conversations to hang out with people anymore. Text messages bigger now than talking on the phone. I said it last week and I need to say it again. This ideology, this theology of me that runs rampant in our world family is always going to fail us. Because at the end of the day, us living for our own good and all that we bring to the table, saying that's where we're going to get our satisfaction, that's where we're going to get our fulfillment, it, it never fulfills us. And see, at the end of the day, we're like, God, why are you not working everything out for me? 
Why is it not happening for me in my timing, God? I've been working hard. I've been a good Christian, God. Why haven't you done these things for me? And God's like, no, it ain't about you. But see, we sit wrecked in this theology of me because we misunderstood what true devotion looks like. For the people in the text, to be devoted, it meant that they spent their time eager and desirous of more and not more of themselves, but more of Jesus. They wanted the apostles to teach them. They wanted to pray. They wanted the fellowship. They wanted to break bread with like-minded people that knew Jesus. They had found their source of life and they wanted to drink deeply. They wanted more. They were fat. And I'm not talking about their figure or the fact that they were pretty high and tipping. Fat, F-A-T, faithful, available, and teachable. Are we faithful, available, and teachable and ready to receive what God might have for us? These people are fat in this text. See, true devotion, again, it, it, it's, it's, it's removing, it's intentionally obscuring self-designation. Our, our me is nowhere in that picture. That's a hard word, but that's what devotion is. That's what it looks like. These people in our text, they receive Christ as Lord and they lay down their lives utterly, devoting themselves to him and the community around them. Their devotion had nothing to do with me but Jesus. It was just to Jesus. So the question we have to ask that we've been asking throughout the last several weeks in the Sermon on the Mount and even in our vision series is what, who are we devoted to? Believer or not, I keep asking this question because here's the truth. Whether you believe or you don't, that question of devotion is one that will plague our lives, whether it's consciously in our minds or unconsciously in our lives. And the way we answer that question, hear me family, will dictate how we live our lives. It's important to know who or what we're devoted to. Which leads to the lingering question in the text is, as I unpack it today, what, what exactly did devotion look like to Jesus? Brings us back to that first point. Growing as a Christian involves devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So what I want to do is I want to break these down practically. I want to help you get a picture of what this actually looks like if we're practicing, if we're saying we're disciples of Jesus, if we're true Christians of Jesus, what does this look like? If we desire to be that, what does this actually look like? The text says they first devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is really the teachings of Jesus as he walked amongst this earth, the, the 40 days when he had resurrected from the grave, and this is taught to the people by the apostles or the church leaders at this time. These folks wanted to be poured into. They were hungry. They wanted to know Jesus more. I said it earlier, but these men were fat. These women were fat. They were faithful, available, and teachable. They were devoted and ready to be taught by the apostles. They wanted to learn from their leaders. Do not miss where I'm going right now. Family, there was a certain level of honor towards their leaders. There was a certain level of saying, I want to know, I want to learn from you that existed in these people. And our family, this is touchy right here because we live in a culture where we don't like authority. We don't like people telling us what to do or teaching us. We don't like authority. That's really touchy for us. We want to do me. We want to do what we want to do and we want to do it how we want to do it. But these folks are devoted first to the apostles' teaching. Early Christians, were, were, they gave of their time, they gave of their talent, they gave of their treasure to the church because they trusted in their leaders that God appointed. 
See, when, when you don't trust your leadership, I got to talk about this a little bit. When you don't trust your leadership, you can't give willingly to your church, whether it be your time, your talent, or treasure. You give it begrudgingly. It's not because of Jesus. You, you, you're, not, you're not trusting him. You're really not trusting your leaders. And, and you, you, you just, oh, I got to do this again. When you give, we have to be able to trust God and we have to trust God with those he puts in leadership to use our time, our money, and everything we do wisely. And that's tough because some of us in here have been drugged through the mud a bit in churches, right? We've had some things happen to us that we don't even want to talk about. We do not like the way the leadership, they, 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 they were towards us, how they acted towards us. We, we, we hold that. We, got, we all got a little, probably, possibly, we have been in a church. We got a little bit of church hurt. One, because people just simple, period. So even though I'm standing on this stage, I got sin in my life, which means I mess up. So, we, so we've been hurt in some way by people in the church and people that call themselves Christian. But here's the thing, God does call people to be in leadership. And when you don't trust the leadership, the church, here's what happens. It will become stagnant and slowly begin to dwindle. It will begin to dwindle in numbers. And don't hear me saying that we need to be doormats in our churches and do whatever the pastor says or the elders say in the church. That's not what I'm saying, but there has to be a high level of trust. There has to be some honor that's given to those that are in leadership. But y'all don't believe me, do you? Y'all like, I don't like this, Pastor D. I don't know if I like this leadership thing, this authority thing. Well, Bible thumper, if you go back into the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, what happens when the believers, do not, when they don't follow Moses, when they don't listen to what he says, when they now have got out of Egyptian captivity, what happens? This 11-day journey that it should have taken to get to the promised land, you know how long they end up in the wilderness? 40 years. 40 years because they lean into their own understanding of what they wanted instead of listening to the man that God put in place to lead them there. They lean to their own understanding and ultimately, they're not just not trusting the leader. You know who they're really not trusting? God. They're not trusting God. Friends, to be a part of a church means that you will submit and follow the leader and the vision of the church that God has given him to lead them and lead you to the place where God is taking or else the church will not go forward. And here's the thing about this before y'all tune, tune me out right now. This isn't just for the church. This is for your jobs too. I mean, think about it. You walk into your company one day and you see your boss walking down the hall and you say, what's up, man? Hey, but here's the thing. I ain't listening to nothing you got to say to me today. I don't trust you. We're not doing that today. I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Or, or better yet, the kids in here. Mommy, daddy, I know you gave birth to me, but uh, today is my day. I'm not doing anything you say to me. Y'all, I can't even tell you what might happen in my house. Y'all might get mad at me. I mean, what do you think what would happen? You're probably going to get fired. And here's the reality. If you go forward in that job, you keep going forward. You know what? The company's not going to go forward. Before. It's not going to move forward because nothing can be built off of dissension, backbiting, and lack of trust. And this is important because what we do or believe when it comes to God in this church, it drives everything we do in our lives. 
If you can't trust God with your pastor or spiritual authority in your life, those elders in your life, how are you possibly going to trust God with your family, your finances, your job, your kids, etc. on down the line? Family, here's my point. For every, in anything to move forward, we have to be able to trust God, but also those he puts in leadership. And I say this, and I'm going to say this, and most pastors probably won't say this, but I need y'all to hear me with this. If you can't trust the pastor in the church that you're sitting underneath, if you can't trust your spiritual authority that you're sitting under, the elders of the church, the people that are covering you and that are caring for you, I'm going to say this, and most people probably wouldn't, then you need to leave that church. And that's for people at renewal and not. If you can't trust me, then this isn't the church for you. If you can't trust Pastor Luke, this isn't the church for you. We're here for your betterment. We're here to care for you. But if you can't trust us, then we can't move forward. You can't move forward. Here's the reality. If you can't trust the leadership that is spiritually covering you, responsible for your discipleship, then you're not going to grow. It's, it's, it's built on dissension. We cannot move forward. Here in the text, the first thing these people submit to is the apostles. And they're taught the word of God. Because if you can't trust the leader, then they can't teach you. We can't even get there. And what happens now is that the church grows. Second thing these new believers, I got to keep moving, devoted themselves to is the fellowship. Now this word fellowship in the Greek is pronounced koinonia. Everybody say koinonia. It's a tongue twister, koinonia, koinonia. That means in the Greek, it means this, common ownership or sharing with someone or in something. They shared in one common spirit amongst one another. Now, I want to remind you about this, the context and the people that are here in this text. They come from different cultural backgrounds. They have many different languages among them now. They're, They're very different from each other, but they're still able to come together around one common person, Jesus. Hmm. Now, now is that interesting? The first gathering, first church, after Jesus ascended, sent the disciples out, was multi-ethnic, it's multicultural, it's a diverse church. I think it's safe to say that in the Bible, there's a biblical precedent for God's church being multi-ethnic and diverse amongst many nations, people coming together because we're bonded under Jesus. I I think it's pretty safe to say that, but why can't the church do that today? 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is still the most divided hour of the week. Now, there's many reasons we can talk about this. We can give reasons why Christian churches are still the most divided church. We, we can talk about this, but the reason I want to give for those, this division, really, is because somewhere along the line, our motivation, of our growth in Jesus became less about the church and more about me. And instead of keeping Jesus at the center, we're at the center. And we come to church and we say things like, oh, my gosh. That person leading again, goodness. Girl, that, it's too contemporary up in there, too liturgical. I need some more gospel. I, he preaching, oh man. And, and, and we go away from where we're here at the church and our motivation is no longer about getting to know Jesus, but it's about me. I need my seat in church. That's where I am, my pew, that's where I am. 
Now, 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 now hear me, family. I said it last week. I'm going to say it again. There's nothing wrong with your preferences. We all got them, but we, ca- we got to be careful not to let our preference trump our conviction. In essence, your preferences should never trump your love for Jesus. It should never trump what he's done in your life. What I'm saying, these people in the text, all 3,000 of them, they, they never once said anything about what they wanted. They never once said anything about their desires, even though they're all together, they're different. They're able to fellowship with one another and come together because Jesus is at the center. This should make us look at the folks that we fellowship in and say, well, what holds us together? What keeps us together? Is it, is it, is it our preference? Is it the color of my skin? What's it that holds us together? What, what is it? Family, family, it's hard to, to, to even look at this and say, man, they, wow, how did they do this? I mean, you got three different people from all different places. They're coming together, but the, the reason they're able to fellowship is because Jesus is at the center, not me. The third thing they, 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 these new, new believers devote themselves to is the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread can be broken down into two different categories, two different ideas, which is one, the Lord's Supper, which we do here every week at Renewal. Some churches do it once a month. It's not necessarily an every week thing you have to do. We do that, and we partake in it as we remember Christ and what he did on our behalf. So when we take the cracker in our hand, that cracker symbolizes his body that was broken for us. But then when we take the cup, it symbolizes his blood that was pouring out for us that washes our sins laid claim. We claim we do this in remembrance of him and we do it corporately or in a community, a body of believers out of obedience to what we see in the scripture where the early church is doing it here or when Jesus did it with his disciples where he's gathered around the table with those that are closest to him. It's the family of God partaking in a meal with one another once a week. But the second meaning of breaking bread in the text is a little more challenging. It's more challenging because it interrupts this culture of me that we live in because now it's a, it, it involves you allowing people into your personal space, allowing them into the space that's intimate. It's the literal eating of meals in homes and larger group settings outside of Sunday morning church. Let me ask you, do you know that God is glorified when you invite people into your homes and you eat meals with them and you celebrate what God's doing in your life? You talk about the Lord and you, do you know that he's, he's glorified when that happens around your table? That, that's also disciples. Y'all can shake your head if you or no, one of the other ones. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's a reality. That, that's also what they're devoting themselves to here. That, that's growing as a Christian. When you're inviting people in your homes, the simple question we got to ask ourselves is, are we doing this, though? And I'm not talking about the once a, once a week group, but are we actually inviting people into our homes or, or going out to eat with people? Because that table is an intimate time of fellowship. And I'm not talking about the people that you just like hanging out with. I'm talking about the people that don't eat like you, that don't look like you, that don't walk like you, don't talk like you, don't vote like you. I'm talking about those people. Do you eat with those people? Do you fellowship with those people? That's what the early church is doing right here. This is one of the reasons we do gatherings outside of Sunday morning. That's why we do worship nights. That's why we do groups. Because family, lives are changed not only on Sunday morning, but more times than most at a dinner table life is changed. That's where my life was changed. 
When I'm sitting around a dinner table with my mentor, his name is CJ, and I'm watching his family function, and I get to see how he loves his kids and loves his wife in front of me, I'm like, wow, I've never seen this before, but I'm seeing him model it in front of me. And now years later with my five kids, when I invite people over my house and they get to sit at our table, I'm doing the same thing. I'm modeling what a true Christian family looks like, which sadly is an anomaly today. What does that look like? Are we actually inviting people into our homes? Are we dining with people that we wouldn't normally do this with? Do we break bread with others? We grow by breaking bread with one another. Last thing these new believers devoted themselves to was the prayer, which revolved around meeting in houses, and temples, temples back then, that would be our church. They're they're meeting in these places, they prayed to God together and they begged God to move. Could you imagine 3,000 people saved? I mean, could you imagine what the prayer times were like? They they were impacted so much by God that they're devoting their lives to him and now they're sitting in these rooms and they're praying to him, giving their lives to him and saying, God, fill us, do do move move among us. Could you imagine those prayer times? 3,000 plus people devoted to prayer right now. Now hear me, prayer, family, prayer does not have to be eloquent. It doesn't have to be all, all, all decked out and you have all the right words. We sometimes think that our prayers have to be so polished when we come to God. It's literally you talking to your father. It's you coming to him, talking. And I know this because when you read the Psalms, you see David writing in the Psalms. When you read the Psalms, there's a book of songs and and, and hymns. And and in some parts, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, David, can you say that? David is like, God, you're so wonderful. You're amazing. He's lifting God up. And then the next few verses, he's like, kill him, kill her. I can't, God, God, put them in hell. I'm like, whoa. God, is that okay? But then you read about David, it says David is a man after God's own heart. And if David can say those things to God, then that means that I can go to God and I can pray and I can cry. I can go to God when I'm upset and I'm angry. I can go to him that way. I can come to him eloquent. But whatever way I go to him, I have to know that God's a loving father. And here's the reality. He just wants to know that I can come to him because he's listening. What's your prayer life look like? Are you devoted to prayer? Let me end with this. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I love reading about Spurgeon. He was a, a white British preacher back in the late 1800s and he wasn't just any preacher. They commonly call him the Prince of Preachers. Prince of Preachers, he, he reco- it was recorded that he preached to over 10 million people in his lifetime. 10 million people, you could find the voice of this prolific preacher ringing through the halls of one of the largest churches at the time, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Some 5,000 people would show up on Sunday morning. They say at least be a thousand or more that were lining the room standing and even out the door just to hear him preach the sermon on Sunday morning. Some would ask, like, how, how did he get this grade and what was it that attributed to this greatness? Millions of people hearing him and thousands getting saved. What attributes to this? Spurgeon would say, he said, it's not, it's not the fact that I read a lot of books. It's not that I'm smart. It's not that I'm just so eloquent. He'd say, my, the greatness of my preaching comes from what happens below the sanctuary. So he'd take the people downstairs, and if you were walking downstairs, you would walk downstairs and you would see hundreds of people on their hands and knees 
praying the whole time he's preaching, begging God to move. So you ask, how did these people get saved? It's because they were devoted to prayer. Let me ask you, what does your prayer life look like? Are you praying at all times? Do you believe in the power of prayer? Renewal, this passage, Acts 2.42, it gets me so excited when I read it. These new believers, they're truly devoted to the disciples of Jesus, and they devote to four hours, four, four areas, the, the, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to the prayer. And in result, they turn the world upside, for, upside down for Jesus. And that's my prayer for our church. As we're entering now, we've ended our fifth year. God has brought us through a lot. We're here today. My prayer is that, that we would be devoted disciples of Jesus to him and him only. That our prayers would be, God, please move among us. You've moved in this city already. You're doing something in renewal that's amazing. But God, we're begging you to still move. We need you to move. Could you imagine what God could do in this city if we all devoted ourselves to those four areas? Do you, could you imagine what he would do with the church and even outside these walls? How many people would be affected if the church was actually on move for Jesus and devoted to him? Not ourselves, but devoted to him. The, the fellowship, the breaking of bed, the apostles' teaching and the prayer. Could you imagine what would happen in Chicago? The question I got to ask you, is are you with me? That's not a rhetorical question. Are you with me? Because here's the reality. If you really love Jesus and you're devoted to seeing him do amazing things, not only in your life, but in the city, then you want to see God move. If you're with me, I need y'all to say yes. Come on now. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. You're a good God. Father, I pray that you would be able to have your hand over our church and continue to move in our midst. It's you and you only, God, that we need and want. Father, I pray that we would devote ourselves, not to ourselves, but you. We want more of you, God. There's nothing new under the sun, and the church did it back in Acts. And we know that you can still do it today. And you're in the business of still saving souls and doing amazing work in cities and community around the world. So God, we just come to you and ask to have your hand on our church and have your hand on us individually. If we're sitting here and saying we don't necessarily know you, Jesus, like that, God, I pray you intercede in our hearts and we come in contact with the amazing grace and mercy of Jesus where you die on the cross for us and take our sins to the grave. We don't have it. We don't have what it takes and we need you. So we come here saying, God, do your work in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 9.30 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.